I wrote I wrote a paper some time ago, um, which was about to come out, um, and it had a collection on with more or less this title in defense of the, the, the Migrant Workers Convention. Um, it's, it, there's a, a collection by Seth David Joss, for those of you who know immigration law, that's just coming out of that uh, contemporary um, perspectives on, on, on immigration law. I, and it's, it's really, uh, I, I, I didn't start out with the intending to defend the convention, I just wanted to have a close look at the convention and I tried to you know, do as much as I, as I could um, you know, from my desk along that line. And, and, and in particular, and the thing that I, I, I did that maybe hasn't been done really in the literature uh, hitherto is, is a, a close analysis of the work of the Committee on Migrant Workers. Uh, there has been a long debate uh, going back to the uh, adoption of the Migrant Workers Convention in 1990. There's been a debate about its adequacy as, as, a, as an instrument but not much, not much work on the, the committee which has been uh, in operation in recent years. So I, I tried to revisit the debates about the, the convention itself, but also to uh, shed light on, on the convention through the, through the work of the uh, committee. I didn't start out intending to defend the convention against its critics, but that's sort of where I ended up. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I suppose I want to explain uh, a little bit uh, why I've ended up uh, in that place. And uh, well, you can uh, agree or disagree. I'd be interested uh, either way. I mean, it might help. Just because uh, I know this is not just a, a, a legal audience, just to say a few things about uh, where, I, where I'm coming from in the in the work. Um, I, I may be aware I, I'm coming from presenting the work, having uh, having been through this uh, this particular uh, project. I'm more conscious of myself that the way I work, and perhaps, and, and this is not true of all uh, lawyers or legal commentators, is that I, my, my method is to accept that, st that states are going to be controlling migration, and so. Uh, the whole set of issues are kind of put aside when you do that, uh, and then, uh, and I suppose therefore w w one is more in the detail of uh, trying to evaluate uh, the detail of what's being done, uh, rather than um, being so worried about uh, the bigger questions of the uh, ultimate legitimacy uh, of states being engaged in this activity. Or methodologically, I don't think philosophically, methodologically, I'm, I'm accepting that states are going to be controlling migration. And uh, I, I suppose it probably follows from that, that, and this may explain why I'm ending up sort of on the side of the convention, I think it follows that uh, I, don't, uh, I don't necessarily have great expectations of international law when it comes to um, human rights in general or the protection of foreigners, which is essentially what we're talking about, uh, specifically because if states are interested in controlling, uh, you know, are going to be controlling migration uh, and uh, defining the terms of the the position of foreigners in their society, well, um, that, um, and states are also making international law, or the primary makers of international law, well, you know, maybe we, we, should, we, we, we can't have, from this standpoint, we can't have great expectations of what is being done. Indeed, I, strange as it may seem, in the, almost struggling with the question, why have we got standards at all? You know, uh, why, why, I mean, as we see, you know, why, why have standards that constrain states? Why do states accept constraints? Uh, but which yet, which yet many do. So, so, so my starting point is one, perhaps not a great expectation, I, I freely admit that. Um, but turning to the convention itself, I mean, what's, uh, what, I, um, what, I, what I'm resisting is uh, probably these three different things. Firstly, I think this, if people know the literature, I suspect you'll back me up on this, there's incredible focus in the literature of the American Workers' Convention on the non-ratification by highly developed states of, of the treaty. Uh, to an absurd degree, I mean, I, this is a subgenre about why, why, or why highly developed states haven't ratified. I've contributed to this subgenre myself. 
Um, and it's, it's kind of strange because there are a group of states that have ratified and it seems there isn't that much literature in fact about their experiences or the, the significance uh, for, of the convention for them. So I'm somehow trying to shift the focus onto the states that have ratified, that are participating. Let's talk about them uh, rather than <coughs> the question um, which has interested a lot of Western academics, which is um, why, why the highly developed states are not participating. Um, and then there are more specific things. Uh, I take issue with the, the critique of the convention that it is too similar to previous instruments, in particular the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the uh, Parallel Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. I take issue with that. And um, I also take issue with the claims that the um, the standard of protection in the convention is simply too low, and in particular, uh, you could, we can do that textually, but also the, the work of the committee, um, I think, is really crucial uh, to that, uh, that that part of uh, what, what I have to say. So just, in, just for those who may not know, uh, you know the history of this convention, it's, um, I mean, I, taking the long view, I, I see it as, uh, as a product of the, the kind of end of the, the, the big migration wave of the post-war, in the 1970s. It's a product of the debates of that time, but it just took so long to happen that it, it kind of arrived and uh, became central to debates in a completely different periods, uh, the, the, the period of much greater migration uh, in, in the 1990s and, uh, and 2000s. Um, but it, it, does, it, it, is, it does come from, strangely, uh, a different time, although it speaks to our time. Um, it's it, it arose out of the unhappiness of uh, key uh, states of origin with the use of, or the centrality of the, the ILO, the International Labour Organization, um, to international standard making uh, in relation to migrant workers. The ILO has um, a structural bias towards the, the, the so-called industrialized countries, the most developed countries. It's also tripartite, which tripartite uh, has tripartite system, so it, that, and that is a places some constraints or shapes uh, standards that come out. Come out. And the, the, these states were particularly frustrated with uh, the ILO Convention of 1975 on migrant workers, which, although it reaffirmed the general principle of equal treatment of migrant workers relative to uh, nationals of the country, it also focused in particular on um, uh, place obligations rather on states uh, to have um, uh, effective policies against irregular work. Uh, both as regards the organisation of regular work and as regards employment. And uh, states of origin were unhappy with that being the focus of a convention in the 1970s uh, about migrant work. So they, they, their attention shifted to the General Assembly which they, of the UN, which they thought was a better forum uh, for uh, states of origin, um, developing countries in particular. Uh, and, and ultimately, it was the General Assembly that was the, uh, the route through which the, the convention was adopted. The principle was accepted in 1979, over 10 years of negotiation, um, and eventually the final text in 1990. But ratification then proceeded slowly, and it was only in 2003, obviously a long time from 1975, uh, it was only 2003 <coughs> that uh, sufficient ratifications had been attained for it to come into force. The, these are the states that have ratified. Uh, actually, there's a very nice map on Wikipedia, if anyone wants a, a, nice, a nicer picture. Uh, you know, the regions, but I'll make, I'll make some points about the regions. But you can see that there is, a, if, if you look, you see there is a steady trickle of states uh, joining. 
Um, it's not that there was an initial wave of states joining and then it tailed off, it's just kept going, new states have joined. Uh, I, I can't say from my office in Kent why exactly all these states are joining up. I don't have that kind of level of knowledge. That's the kind of thing that seems to me ought to be researched. Um, but it is, it is, it still has momentum, this convention. It's still, it's still attracting uh, new states uh, to join us. I, I can maybe come back to this slide at the end just so you can, you can see, us, uh, see the states that are parties. Uh, but I, I would make a few points by way of summary in, um, of the pattern of ratification. One is that it, it, it's clear that the convention ha has a particular significance in the Americas. Um, I, I, again, I don't know why, but it's, it's playing from the, the, the number of ratifications from American states um, that, uh, you know, that, that it, it, ha it has a particular life uh, there. And uh, um, many states in Central America uh, and Mexico our parties. A number of states in West Africa as well, uh, a number of states in the broad Middle East, North Africa region, and um, a small number of Asian states, but including quite significant ones, Indonesia, Philippines, Sri Lanka, uh, Bangladesh, and uh, then a, a handful of uh, European states. My summary is that, and this may be something that's true about migration as well, and in fact, it's, it's almost as if it's mid-level states that are joining the convention. That's the kind of pattern that I see. It's states that are maybe mid-level in terms of development, also states that are often mid-level in terms of location. They are, uh, they are to the south of the, uh, the highly developed states of the north. But that's why you see Mexico, Turkey, Morocco, uh, Libya's party. Um, that, so there's a pattern of, of states that are uh, on the way to the great economic centers. But then there are also, of course, sending states here, and that's, that's where the, I suppose, the Asian uh, states in particular, uh, uh, Philippines, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, and some of Mexico, Morocco, and so other, uh, others of the states that are also transit states. Um, so I think lo in looking at and reflecting on the, the list, uh, you can see that this is potential in terms of, um, you know, there are, <laughs> very significant and diverse migration experiences for, of these states, at least of their nationals, but also of people coming in and coming through uh, these states. And that, that, and that is, that it seems to me is important. Um, and I, this makes a point for lawyers at the end. Uh, I find it particularly intriguing that there are five states that are parties to the Migrant Workers Convention that are not even parties to the Refugee Convention. You know, so they, they have accepted obligations towards migrant workers, even though they have not been prepared uh, to accept the general principle of, uh, at least in, in treaty terms, of, of non-refoulement and of refugee status. And that's particularly significant in Asia. Uh, many, the, most, the, the majority of Asian states are not parties to the Refugee Convention, but we see significant Asian states uh, joining this one. So uh, again, this convention has life. I think it's really, uh, it has significance for, um, for the, the states and the, the regions uh, you know, uh, where there is ratification. The other, I suppose, source of significance, as I mentioned, is the work of the Committee on Migrant Workers, which uh, is, is made up of um, obviously people elected by the, the, uh, the states that are parties, based in Geneva, um, human rights conventions, uh, UN human rights conventions generally have their own committee, a treaty body that, uh, that supervises um, compliance by states. Uh, and typically, that is done here as elsewhere. That is done through a system of state reports. 
there, there, there is the theoretical possibility of a complaints mechanism under this convention, but it hasn't been activated. So the, the core role, as it is for other, under other treaties, for other committees, uh, is to the consideration of state reports and the uh, delivery of um, observations uh, upon them. And there has also been one um, kind of own, own initiative uh, um, comment on the, the status of uh, migrant domestic workers. That's uh, 2010. This again, I think, is something that probably all, I, I would like to do myself if I have the opportunity, but that ought to be done is really to, to, to study the committee itself. Um, that's the one paper I know of, uh, fairly descriptive um, of the work of the committee. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have any particular insights into how the committee works um, and, and the, kind of the quality of its, uh, of its deliberation. All I, all I see is what comes out at the end. Um, so it may be that I'm, um, no, I, I freely admit I may be overestimating something um, quite entirely possible. But I think that at least there is potential. I think this is really what the claim I would make about the committee based on its work so far, that if, if there is potential for it as a, um, as a standard maker uh, in, in, in the field of um, protection of migrant workers and migrants um, more generally. And I, mean, I, I would break it down in terms of obviously they, 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 call, they are somehow the colleagues who account the states that are parties. Uh, because they have to report and there are other inputs <coughs> from other, other organizations. And then th there are critical comments uh, of, of more or less every state that, uh, that submits reports. But also um, the principles that come out of the committee's work are, uh, you know, are, are of wider relevance um, to those of us who are you know, interested in the, the slowly emerging uh, idea of international migration law the work of this committee seems to me to be uh, potentially of, uh, of great importance. Um, so I, I, I would emphasize the word potential, I think, with the committee. Well, I, I can't make any grander claims, but there is certainly something there about the committee uh, um, that, that deserves uh, further investigation. Now, turning to, to the, uh, the text of the convention and to some extent its interpretation by the committee, um, I'll just, make, um, just want to make some some, some uh, quick points uh, about, about that. The first thing I want to say is that have, having looked at the convention again in the light of the committee's work, one thing that's very striking is that in reality the word workers in this convention seems to be in practice pretty irrelevant. If you look at what the committee's doing, they're basically talking about the position of migrants in foreign countries, or in, in, in the, the uh, migrants with a connection to the, to the state party that, that's being considered. Right? They, they don't, they're not particularly worried about whether the, person, the, the groups they're looking at are workers. They say a bit more about the economic and social sphere. But essentially they're talking about migrants uh, as a whole. And, and I think that is, a, that is, in the long run, something that may turn out to be quite important. Because this may turn out to be the Migrants' Convention rather than the Migrant Workers' Convention. Now why is this? I think it goes back to the scope. Uh, the scope as defined uh, in, in the convention. I mean, obviously, there's no in common with human rights. Other human rights treaties, there's no requirement of reciprocity. So it's not that the, 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 that states owe duties only to the nationals of other states that are parties. It's all migrants that a state um, will, will owe, owe duties to. Um, but then, uh, Article Two defines the term migrant worker in a particularly broad way. It seems to me as someone who is to be engaged, is engaged, or has been engaged 
in remunerated activity inside of which he or she is not a national. Uh, and this is or maybe contrasted with the, the definition of the ILO conventions, which uh, speaks of someone moving from one, another, one country to another in order to be, <coughs> to be employed there. And some of, the, some of the, the key things about the, 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 the Migrant Workers Convention definition are that it includes self-employment. Um, and that's quite significant, it seems to me, because self-employment could be in the informal economy, and a, a lot of informal work will be self-employed from a legal uh, perspective, self-employed work from a legal perspective. So that opens it out, it seems to me, to the informal economy straight away. It's people who have worked in the past, are working, or could be working. And that, again, the, the fact that it's people who you know, may go to work or, or wish to go to work, uh, in another country, that again is a, is a broadening. Um, and there's no, there's no reference to the purpose of the migration either. Uh, people could be migrating for any reason or none, as long as they, 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 they meet the uh, trigger. Um, and indeed, because of the future elements, there's no requirements of actual migration. It's just maybe that people are planning to go. So, I, 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 what I, the way I see it is that this very broad concept of what a migrant worker is. Uh, is the beginning of permitting uh, the committee uh, and, and others wishing to, uh, you know, having regards to, to, to its implementation, to uh, you know, to, to kind of drop the, the language of worker and just focus on the status of foreign nationals. We see the convention as a standard about the status of uh, foreigners. Um, and of course, sorry, just as, as regards to scope, it is also the case that uh, um, it's unequivocally the case that irregular workers or undocumented workers, whether it's the work that's without permission or the, the presence in the states, uh, all of that, um, it, people in the regular position are, are unequivocally covered uh, by the convention. So I, I'm, I feel I'm just making some points about the, you know, on a close reading, uh, the breadth of the, the convention in terms of its scope, and um, take it from me, look at it yourselves if you wish, uh, in practice, that's, that then permits the committee to, to have um, uh, you know, a broad read, see itself as having a broad readness to, to examine the status of all foreigners and not simply uh, those who are specifically in employment. Um, now, in terms of criticisms, one of the big cri criticisms of the convention from the beginning uh, was, uh, or has been, that it, uh, it's too close to other treaties. And this particularly relates to um, what's, uh, what is part three of the convention, which is sets out a series of rights for, uh, all, for all migrant workers and their, their family members, um, and does in places undoubtedly read like a, a, a kind of bill of rights, a catalogue, uh, such as it exists in, in other uh, human rights instruments at the UN level and uh, at regional levels. However, I would defend part three uh, and its role in a convention about migrant workers stroke migrants in general. Um, and I, I, that, that is because, firstly, there are many human rights which have a particular meaning, it seems to me, for migrants. And I've uh, just listed two uh, there. General human rights that appear to be in, in all or most uh, human rights instruments, you know, they'll have a particular meaning very often for migrants, for uh, the prohibition of forced labour being one. The, the, as I mentioned there, the, the protection of property being another, that may be something of particular interest uh, to foreign nationals. Um, but beyond that, there anyway, if one looks to, to this convention, many of its um, many of the, the rights in Part Three that have been su subject to this criticism, uh, in fact, are 
have elements that are specifically about migration, specifically about the migrant experience or the migrant uh, situation, um, such as the right to leave, uh, the right to enter the state of nationality, uh, specific protections in relation to detention, uh, that, that uh, migrants should not be uh, detained with, uh, you know, with those within the criminal justice system, but prohibition on the uh, destruction of identity and immigration documents, a rule against uh, collective expulsion, and also a right of access to um, consular and diplomatic assistance by the state of nationality. All in part three, much cr criticised, uh, and all relating specifically to the uh, migration uh, case. So that that's very quickly my, my uh, defence of the Convention against that criticism. A different criticism uh, focused on the position of irregular migrants within the Convention. And this is particularly about part four of the Convention, for those, those who know it. And that sets out a, a, a list of, of additional rights for those in uh, a lawful uh, position, those in a regular, in a regular position uh, in uh, the state in question. Um, well, it's undoubtedly true. I mean, th it is a feature of the Convention that there is this separation between the, <coughs> the general part three and part four, which uh, relates to those in, in, in that lawful position. Nevertheless, I think one has to emphasize uh, just how much the Convention is doing for irregular migrants, uh, you know, viewed in the round. Um, in part three, there are specific provisions that categorically uh, protect the position of irregular uh, migrants in relation to employment law, in relation to uh, emergency health care, and in relation to access to education for children. Um, there, and there are other articles in part three that have been interpreted by the committee in a way that is of particular value to uh, those in the regular position. And, and uh, this, um, this basic right of, of children to have their birth registered, uh, that is something the committee is focused in particular on, um, because it isn't guaranteed to irregular migrants in uh, many states. And again, this is something that the, the convention as an instrument is doing for uh, irregular migrants. Um, and, and of course, the, the very existence of part three and the structure of the convention is a guarantee. While, while the part four rights are being denied, it is an affirmation of the rights in part three. There's no, I mean, if, if any rights in part three must be available to those who are in a regular position, otherwise it would be in part four. Um, so I think, the, I think this criticism is unfair as a, as, a, as a critique of the convention as a whole. Uh, although clearly there are uh, extra provisions for uh, lawful migrants in uh, part four. Uh, there are, um, I mean, two points in particular where I think the critique is particularly true. Uh, one is about trade union rights, where there's an um, inexplicable, in human rights terms, inexplicable division between the, the trade union rights of migrants, between those available to all workers, all, all migrant workers, and those only available to uh, those. Uh, migrants in, in a lawful position, which is the right to form <coughs> uh, trade unions. Uh, that's inexplicable in, within an ILO setting or indeed in other uh, human rights uh, treaties. Uh, so that is a, it's a valid criticism on that point. And also on the right to health. This is more arguable, but uh, at least some would argue that, uh, that equal treatment in relation to health care is a fundamental right of everyone. 
uh, and in, in other in other, on other treaties it might be seen as such, but here there's a separation between urgent and uh, non-urgent, and the non-urgent is not uh, available to regular migrants under the, the scheme of <coughs> this convention. So there are specific points where I would, uh, the criticism is valid, but I think in the round, it's, it's, I think it's unfair to down the convention on the, on the basis that it, it has slightly fewer rights for uh, irregular migrants than for all. The last uh, kind of group of points I want to make about the, the, the text, or the content of the convention and its interpretation, is about this idea of um, sound, equitable, humane, and lawful conditions in international migration, which is a, a term, is a phrase that is used as a, a, the heading of Part Six of the Convention. Uh, what what has been said in terms of criticism is that of the Convention is that it gives too much leeway to states to engage in immigration control, that it's too affirming of the uh, the principle and the detail of immigration control. And, and again, there are other provisions of the, the, the Convention that. Can for that, that perspective, but there are equally provisions which potentially curtail what states do in significant ways, and they, it seems to me, have been, uh, those op the opportunities presented by those provisions have been taken up by the committee uh, in its work uh, to date. And, uh, sorry, the committee in its interpretation of Part 6, but also its interpretation of certain other provisions uh, elsewhere in the Convention. Um, and I've given a couple of examples uh, there of the, the kind of thing I have in mind. The committee has been very tough on the criminalization of, of uh, irregular migration. Uh, pretty much everywhere they find um, the criminal law or the criminal justice system touching irregular migrants because of being irregular. Uh, the committee criticizes it. Uh, so they, they, they criticize detention of irregular migrants within the criminal justice system. There's a specific uh, provision of the convention about that. They also criticise the uh, criminalisation of illegal presence. So it's a big issue in many states. You know, is it a criminal offence just to be without permission in a state, or is that just an administrative matter? Well, the committee is very definitely taking the view that it shouldn't be criminalised without necessarily having clear that textual foundation within the convention. Um, and also, in one case, um, they or sorry, two cases they've, they've criticised. Uh, the use of criminal sanctions, the imposition of criminal sanctions upon those who are uh, wishing to exit a state in an irregular manner, so not through uh, conventional uh, ports of, of courts or, uh, or uh, routes. Uh, again, without having a clear basis, it seems to me, in the convention, but that is the line that the committee is very definitely taking, that the criminal law should not be uh, in use uh, to, um, in relation to irregular migration and uh, in, in, in all of its uh, different uh, forms. So that's one way, it seems to me, that this kind of philosophy of having um, a more orderly but also more humane uh, systems of immigration control you know, has led the committee to take positions quite against uh, state practice in, uh, in, in many regions. And, and the same is true in, the, in relation to regularization. The, the, the convention is uh, famously ambiguous about regularization. It appears to rule it out or I'm sorry, not sorry, not to make it an obligation in one place, but then to contemplate it happening uh, in another. And, uh, and Article 69 is the uh, is, is the, the key provision of that where that ambiguity uh, comes out. The committee has taken again a much tougher view uh, of states, mm -hmm. and it has insisted that at least where there are um, 
there are significant numbers of irregular migrants in a country, that state should have systems of regularization. That is basically their position. And they use uh, both the, this, um, the, essentially the general principle of orderly and humane uh, immigration systems. Uh, they use that general principle. And the, the, the contemplation of regularization in Article 69, those are the uh, primary reasons that uh, the committee has given. It has also um, referred to the so social and economic position of migrants as a further justification, saying that unless migrants have access to regularization, then their, their ability to exercise social and economic rights, guaranteed elsewhere in the convention, may be compromised. So both this kind of general philosophy about how immigration systems work and the specifics of exercise of social economic rights, both of those have been used by the committee to support the view that there should be access to regularization in uh, contracting states. Oh, and then, yeah, just one, one other thing I haven't really touched on um, in my talk, but in the, the written version I make uh, quite a lot more about is that a, a, a big feature of the, the committee's work has been uh, focusing on the duties of states towards their own nationals when they're abroad. Um, and that has included, obviously, sorry, you, you've seen from the, the list that there are a number of states, key states there, uh, which have you know, many, uh, many emigrants. Um, but among those are the, among the <coughs> specifics that they have said is uh, that the committee really favours bilateral um, arrangements between states of origin and uh, states where there are significant numbers of their nationals who maybe are in a, a, a particularly vulnerable position. And, um, and this is a strange way in which the convention may have had some indirect effects beyond the, the states to who, which are part to it. And they, they focus in particular uh, on the position of domestic workers in Gulf states. And they've, they've said, well, look, they've said, for example, to Egypt and to the Philippines, well, look, you, many of your nationals are, I are in Gulf states. They're not in a strong position. You need to be doing something about it. Uh, and that and that is a sort of juicy through the committee's work which has been placed upon states of origin. Um, and they also have said more generally that, uh, again, where there are large numbers of, of migrants, that uh, states may have duties to uh, assist them where they have um, labour or social disputes in uh, the countries that they're living in. That's been said of uh, the Philippines, to, to the Philippines and to Sri Lanka. Uh, that, that, I, that, I, um, that I've seen. Uh, so, I mean, th this is a, again, this may be something that could be explored in its own right. It seems to me that the way the committee has really used the convention uh, to, to place obligations upon uh, immigration states uh, to, to take responsibility for at least uh, the, the migrants who are in well known uh, destinations in, in, in relatively large numbers. Um, so just, just to finish, what I'm, I, I know I'm really focusing on the potential of the convention. I'm not saying it has by any means itself the world's problems in relation to migration or the, the problems of uh, those in, in contact with uh, the, the contracting states. Uh, but I, I, I just think that writing off the convention, which is, is sort of where the, where the, the tendency of the early literature, I think, is a, is a profound mistake. Uh, it has life, it has life uh, in, you know, for the states and in the regions where it has, has taken hold. Uh, and the work of the committee you know, ha has the capacity, the committee has the capacity to, uh, if, if the right context is created uh, to, uh, through its interpretation, to make a difference to migrants in, in 
context with the states engaged with the committee, but also to lay down uh, or to, to contribute, to that, as I said earlier, to this gradual evolution uh, of some kind of basic norms uh, as to uh, you know, for international migration law in other states.